turn this morning to Psalm 23 as we continue in our July series of um, sermons Matt has preached before but has reworked to preach again. Uh, in other words, sermons that I like and that I think are valuable. Uh, this morning I've decided again to reflect on a passage of scripture, Psalm 23, that really doesn't need any, any introduction, right? Psalm 23 is the most famous passage of the Bible. It's usually the first full chapter that Christians memorize. It's the passage that we go to when people who are um, hurting and, uh, and suffering, we bring to them to encourage them. Um, several times I've been at the bedside of a dying saint and they've requested that it be read to them. Uh, families want it read at funerals. Uh, psalm 23 is a psalm that's instantly comforting. It's immediately helpful. It encapsulates the core Christian belief that the Lord Jesus Christ is our shepherd and that because of him we shall dwell in the house of the Lord all of our days. Uh, now as familiar as we all may be with this psalm, uh, I want to offer you maybe a new way of thinking about it this week. Uh, if you're like me, when you read Psalm 23 in the past, you tend to see it as describing the Christian's life from birth to death. So your life begins and is carried on as the Lord's sheep, and then it ends with your final resting place with the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. Uh, so you can read this as sort of a psalm of a rival, right? The, the psalm promises that the Lord will make sure that you and I arrive in heaven. Uh, but, but having studied this psalm and having prayed through this psalm, uh, I don't think that's necessarily the best way to read this psalm. It's not a bad way. This is not necessarily the best way. Uh, because I don't think the psalm is ultimately a psalm of arrival. I think it's a psalm of returning. And I know we haven't read it yet, but if you just have your Bible open, if you look at verse 6 in your pew Bible or in the Bible you brought with you, you'll see that the word dwell has a footnote and that footnote gives you another translation, which is return. And without boring you with all the details, I'll just say this. Uh, the Hebrew text says return, but an ancient Greek translation of Psalm 23, the Septuagint, misread the Hebrew word for return as dwell. And for a variety of reasons, which aren't important, our translations, at least from the 17th century onward, have followed the Greek mistranslation of dwell rather than the Hebrew original return. Uh, now, clearly the psalm is saying that we will dwell, we'll live in the Lord's house. So on the one hand, it's like not that big of a deal. But on the other hand, I do think it changes how we use this psalm in our daily lives. Because the psalm ends with a promise. I will return to the house of the Lord all of my days. This is a psalm of return, not a psalm of arrival. Why does that matter? Uh, because God's people... Throughout our history, whether it's Adam and Eve in the garden or Israel in exile or Peter after his denial of Christ, we all find times when we are distant from God. Uh, every Christian, including all the ones alive in this room, know what it means to be emotionally, spiritually, or even physically separated from God and his people. And so when I call Psalm 23 a psalm of return, what I mean is, in this psalm, God promises to get us when we are distant from him and bring us back to himself. And he promises to do that every day of our lives. 
Psalm 23 is God's promise that not one of his sheep will be lost and that no matter how long our sojourn on earth is, there will never be a time when he will not overcome any distance between himself and his people to bring us back. And so what I want to do this morning then is walk through the psalm and make some observations about the various ways that God comes and brings us back to himself. And then I want to end with a brief reflection on how the psalm can be uh, claimed and prayed by Christians, not just at the end of our lives, but in the middle of our darkest days. Okay? Uh, Let's read Psalm 23, and then uh, we'll walk through the psalm together. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall return to the house of the Lord always. Thus far the reading of what can only be God's own word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for uh, this beautiful, powerful portion of Scripture that has meant so much to us, um, from the youngest to the oldest. Lord, we pray that as we reflect on it, that you would uh, bless that reflection so that we can understand the depth and the profundity and the power and the steadfastness and the faithfulness of your love and your care for us. Uh, Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher, may the meditation of all our hearts as those called to hear and respond to your word, may it all now be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so the first thing I want you to notice is the title that's given to the psalm. It says, A Psalm of David. And the titles of psalms, frankly, aren't always interesting. Um, they don't always have a lot to add to how someone interprets it. Uh, but I think this title does. And I think it does because the psalm focuses on the need of God's people to be brought back into his presence. And if you know anything about David's life, you know that he spent a large portion of his life physically separated from the house of the Lord, which in the Old Testament was the temple. Uh, You may know that David spent many years running for his life from King Saul because Saul was trying to murder him. And during all of those years, David was physically separated from uh, the house of the Lord. He couldn't enter the temple uh, because Saul was going to murder him if he did. And then the same is actually true later on in David's life when he had to run from his son, Absalom, because Absalom was also trying to murder him. See, by having David associated with this psalm, particularly at the end, saying, and I will return to the house of the Lord all the days of my life, We're being told to connect this to a life of suffering, a life of running and living in the valley of the shadow of death. Uh, So this psalm is not just for rosy fields and and sunshiny days. It's it's for the battlefield. It's for the persecuted. It's for the betrayed. It's for those who long to return to the house of God and to his presence and to his security. That's the association. 
Okay, so what does the Lord do then for David and for his people? Well, verses 1 and 2, we're going to work through the psalm here. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Uh, Just two brief reflections on these verses. Uh, The first is the Lord being our shepherd means that the Lord is our king. Uh, Throughout the Old Testament, you'll find that the king is referred to as the shepherd of Israel because it's the king's job to protect the sheep. Uh, Thus, when we're saying the Lord is my shepherd, what we're saying is the Lord is my king. Specifically, he is the defender of my life. And then next we get a series of beautiful images. We lie down in green pastures. We're led beside still waters or quiet waters. And our souls are restored. Green pastures and still waters are both images that refer back to creation. Uh, to that original kingdom of peace. Uh, Torrential waters and flood waters in the Bible, those are used for judgment. Uh, Peaceful waters, still waters, quiet waters, those are used for life, like the streams that flowed through Eden. Uh, Green pastures refer back, I think, to the green plants that God grew for his glory and for the pleasure and joy and the peace of Adam and Eve. And this image connects then really well to he restores my soul. Now, soul usually means life in the Old Testament, and to restore uh, the soul is to return to life. It's, it's actually the very same word that uh, is used at the end, and I will return to the house of the Lord. Here he returns my life. So the Lord Jesus Christ here is telling us that he gives to his people life and peace, uh, the kind of peace that we had with him in the garden when we were not at war with God and We're not at war with one another, but we're united with each other and with Jesus in joyful, unending peace. In Philippians chapter 4, we're told that Christ gives to his people a peace that passes all understanding. Uh, I think that's exactly the meaning in these verses in Psalm 23. In our sojourn through suffering and distance, the Lord comes to us and he gives us his peace which passes all understanding so that we would not despair, but have our life restored. When we're, we're then told in verse 3, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And the only thing I want to point out here is that paths of righteousness shouldn't be thought of simply as a morality metaphor, but as a, a metaphor of travel. Uh, the paths of righteousness or the road of righteousness is the highway that leads to Zion. Um, You could think of this as the Bible's yellow brick road, which leads to the Emerald City, (laughs) or the Oregon Trail, which leads to the West, if you're a gamer or a historian. Uh, Paths of Righteousness is the name, it's the name of the road that God leads his people on as he brings us to his house. So God restores our life from despair, And then he leads us on the road of righteousness, which is the path home. Verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And on this verse, I just want to make the point that the road to Jesus will often take us through real dangers. Uh, The cross, which we are called to carry, 
is real. The suffering that God's people experience is real. Uh, And if you've read the Bible at all, you know that God's house is often at the other end of the valley of the shadow of death. But why then is the psalmist confident? Because Jesus is with him. Uh, Jesus doesn't stand at the other end of the darkness and say, come towards the light. Hope you make it. Uh, No, we know that Christ is the light. And he shines in the darkness. The light actually enters into the darkness. And the light escorts us, walks with us through the valley. Uh, In the Old Testament, fear and trust are often antonyms. We're afraid when we think that God is not with us. And we trust, we have faith, when we know that he is. As those who find themselves needing to make real journeys back to God's house, we can have true faith in Jesus. Because Jesus, the light, shines in the darkness, which uh, even the deepest darkness of the valley of the shadow of death cannot overcome. Right? The true light, Jesus Christ, is already shining, as John says in his gospel, and is with us and is escorting us through home to himself. Verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Uh, this is not just an image of provision in the middle of danger. Uh, it's a picture of honor, and it's a picture of care. It's a picture of, of beauty and of health. Uh, when you have a table prepared for you by a king, and when that king anoints you with oil, which is symbolic of being set aside to a high position and declared to be healthy and fit for service, to be declared to be beautiful enough, handsome enough, to serve, to be in the presence of the king, you're being honored by that king. So when God escorts us home, uh, he doesn't give glory and honor to the people who are trying to destroy the church. He gives honor to us. He saves us. He's telling us, though those people don't love you, I love you. Though they don't value you, I value you. I find you. I see you. I declare you to be beautiful and healthy and good and and honorable and worthy of being in my presence. See, God's judgment of us is not the same as the judgment of our actual enemies or our spiritual enemies or the emotional despair that can well up in our own hearts to say, I'm worthless and I'm terrible and I should just go to a hole and die. Uh, God's judgment of us is of lavish care, love and welcome and value and worth, which assures us that we will enter into heaven. That's the point of this particular verse. And when you're in the valley of the shadow of death and all feels lost and you feel worthless, what a beautiful, what a beautiful concept for Jesus to give you that in the middle of all of this, Jesus finds delight in you, loves you, values you, and welcomes you. And then, of course, verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will return to the house of the Lord all my days. The psalmist ends his psalm with the confidence that God's goodness and faithfulness, that's what mercy means, follow him every day. And actually, there's another translation issue there. As well, it's not actually follow you. Um, you should have a footnote there which say pursue you, 
chase you. The idea is not that you got out ahead of God's mercies and they're following behind you like a, a trailer. The idea is that when we awaken every day, God's mercy and goodness chase us down uh, like the line of the tribe of Judah. Only instead of devouring us, he embraces us like the slain lamb. I mean, you can see where these beautiful images that John gets in Revelation come from when you just sort of reflect on Scripture. The idea is that you cannot get away from his goodness and mercy. The valley of the shadow of death and the distance you feel cannot keep you divided, separated from God and his love because he literally sends them out like hunters every morning to get you and so that it can be given to you. So you see, Jesus leads and he follows us in this path. Enemies can attack us from the front. They often attack from behind. God guards our back. Nothing prevents us from arriving at his house. No enemy, no distance, no power, no principality, nothing. And so just as he is sure that God will guard him every day, so too is the psalmist sure that he can return to the Lord's house all of his days. And as I said at the beginning of the sermon, this is a psalm of return. It's a prayer for us as we find ourselves separated from God. And I think this also just meshes so well with the valley of the shadow of death. Because for most of us, uh, we don't go through this valley uh, once. Uh, we, we go through it 10, 20, 30, sometimes much more. Some of us have valleys of deeper darkness than others, but all of us go through valleys repeatedly. Uh, all of us find ourselves needing to return to the peaceful presence of, of Jesus. And this is the psalmist's confession. So no matter how often he needs to go through the valley, the Lord will be with him through the valley and through his enemies, and he will bring us into his presence because the grace and mercy of God chase us down wherever we are and find us and the light of God walks with us, already shining in the world, day in and day out, forever, every single day. Uh, and on that note, having walked through the psalm, let's focus just a bit more on how we can pray the psalm and confess the psalm than as we suffer and experience distance. Uh, and we need to do this because unlike the psalm, uh, which sees God's presence and suffering as compatible, frankly, we don't. Uh, clearly, this psalm and all of Scripture really recognizes that God's goodness and our brokenness can exist in our lives in the same moment, right? God's goodness and our brokenness can exist in our lives at the same moment. In the Bible, it is really expected that we Christians will have both peace that passes all understanding and tears that flow from hardship and suffering. In the Bible, the presence of suffering never cancels out the presence of Jesus in the life of his people. Uh, that's the psalmist's view. And that is not how we view things most of the time. Unlike the Bible, we often don't believe that Jesus and suffering can exist in our lives at the same time. We think of suffering in God's presence as sort of canceling each other out. Uh, if God is present, then my life will be all peace and light. And if my life is full of suffering, then God can't really be there, right? 
And th this is our view probably because this is our culture's view. Uh, and you can hear it in the most common complaint that non-Christians make and that Christians make. If God was really real, or if he was really there, if he really cared, how can I have all of this pain and all the suffering? See, we've taught ourselves that God and suffering can't really be in the same place at the same time, which is a very interesting view for people who believe in the cross. Uh, that approach impacts us in this way. Uh, when we say Psalm 23, when we recite it, when we confess it, when we pray it, especially the very beginning, verse 1, which says that we will want for nothing, we don't mean usually what the psalm means. Because what the psalm clearly means, as we've gone through, is that we will not want for God's presence in the midst of suffering. We will not want for his mercy. We will not want for his goodness. But what we mean is that God should take all of our suffering away. And at the back of our minds, we think that if he doesn't do that, that he's not really the good shepherd that the psalm claims him to be. Right? For us, passages like Psalm 23 function more like a command to Jesus or a test of Jesus rather than a prayer to Jesus. Uh, because so often we don't read Psalm 23 as a way to embrace God's presence in the midst of suffering. We, we try to use it as a way to force God to prove himself to us and drive suffering out. And you know there's a word for this kind of approach to God. This is very important because it describes exactly this approach of reciting a passage of Scripture in order to constrain God to remove suffering from us. And that word is magic. Because what is magic? Magic is using words or ceremonies to control. That's what it is. Right? Magic is trying to force the world to be the way you want it to be through you know, incantations and words and ceremonies. It's trying to force God to do what you want him to do. This is why God forbids the use of magic among his people in the Old Testament, because God and his world cannot be constrained or controlled by us. And so what happens is you can say some magic words, right? Hocus pocus, bippity boppity boo. And with those words, you hope uh, to change your reality and to force Jesus to act towards you in a certain way. But what's the difference between nonsense words like hocus pocus and, uh, and uh, me saying, Lord, you're my shepherd. I shall not want. So take away all the suffering. I would submit to you that the difference is actually very slight. Maybe nothing at all. Maybe it's a difference without a distinction. And it doesn't matter if you wrap it up in pious language. Well, I'm just trying to pray God's promises back to him. He'll act as he promised, right? The Lord will always act as he promised. But one, he didn't promise to take away all suffering. Two, uh, he acts according to his wisdom in his timetable. You can't force God to act in the way that you want or the way that I want in the timing I want. That's magic. It's not faith. See, it seems to me that this way of thinking treats the Bible like a set of magic words and incantations, but the Bible was not given to constrain God and to conform him to our desires. 
The Bible was given by God to reveal him to us, to constrain us and to conform us to his desires and to help us learn how to see his presence and understand his uh, way of being in our life from sunup to sundown, Monday through Sunday, 365 and a quarter days of the year. And what Psalm 23 teaches us, along with the rest of Scripture, is that Jesus' desire for us is not that we would avoid all suffering. Jesus' desire for us is to see that he is with us in suffering. Jesus wants us to know that as our life twists and spins and has times of ease and, and times of difficulty, that as we enter into the valley of the shadow of death, he's with us. Jesus wants us to know that as we suffer, he is restoring our life so that we are not overcome by it and giving us his peace so that we are not brought to despair through it. Jesus wants us to hear that he loves us even when our enemies or sometimes our own hearts tell us that they hate us and we deserve hatred. Jesus says, no, I anoint your head with oil, right? I value, I love you. Jesus wants us to believe that in the darkness, we are surrounded by the eternal, powerful, life-giving light of Jesus himself. And so what it means to confess Psalm 23 in suffering is to reject using it like some kind of incantation. And, and with that, to throw away this worldview that says that God's presence and suffering are incompatible. And instead to embrace the picture of the world, which Psalm 23 teaches us which is that we will walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but as we walk, we are surrounded by God himself and we are chased down every day by his mercy and his steadfast love. And what it also means to confess Psalm 23, beloved, is this. Uh, it doesn't matter how far away you believe you are from God. Uh, emotionally, physically, spiritually, it doesn't matter how far away you think you are. It doesn't matter how often you've been far away from God. If you belong to Jesus, be assured that Jesus is with you and will come and get you and will bring you home. Uh, in the darkest valley, in the deepest hole, Jesus will come to you. Indeed, he's already with you and he will bring you safely home on the road of righteousness to Zion. You will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of your life. To confess Psalm 23 is to learn that no matter how far away you are, no matter the suffering you face, our triune God will bring you back and he will do this every day of your life so that in the end you will indeed dwell forever in the house of the Lord your God. My beloved Jesus is with us. He values us. He loves us. He's pursuing us. He's guarding us, and he's bringing us home. Amen? Let's pray together. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much that every morning with the renewal of your fresh mercies comes the renewed promise that you uh, chase us down with your steadfast love and faithfulness that you hem us in before and behind with the light of Christ, so that even in the darkest 
valley of the shadow of death, we need fear no evil. So that even as we hear lies about our worthlessness and our, uh, our brokenness and our uselessness, uh, our terribleness, that we can hear instead the truth that you have loved us with an everlasting love, that you continue your faithfulness to us. Lord, help us to know what it means that uh, you, even in the midst of all of these uh, terrible words that we hear, anoint our heads with oil so that our cup can overflow and we can respond uh, with gracious kindness and mercy even to those who are mistreating us. Father, help us to know uh, that you are leading us on paths of righteousness safely to yourself and help us to encourage one another with the, the hope that even though there is suffering, that you are with us. Help us to see your presence through your spirit uh, in our lives and in the lives of your church uh, so that uh, together we can have that confidence and not be afraid, but know uh, that we always belong to you, body and soul, and that we will always return to the house of our God and that we will always live with you forever because of what Jesus has done for us. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.